Amen. In the midst of our everyday life, it can be so easy to forget how powerful praise actually is. Back in 2006, there was a social worker in New York City named Dan Cohen. And Dan Cohen, while he was walking the streets one morning, was listening to his favorite music on his iPod. I don't know if you remember what that is, but an iPod was a separate device for music that was separated from our phone. It was the only way we could access music at one time was through these separate devices. But he loved music more than anything, and so he was listening to his music while he's walking, and he had this kind of stark realization and thought. He started to think, what happens when I get older, and what if when I get older, I get sick, and I get sick beyond my abilities, and I have to get put into a, a home or assisted living facility, and what if my music gets taken away from me? So he went home that day, and he called every local assisted living facility in the city, (laughs) trying to figure out, is this true? Uh, Do you all have music for your patients? Do you have personal devices for them to listen to their favorite music? And he found out his worst nightmare could actually come true. They didn't have any personal music for their patients. So he began saving up money and collecting money in order to give iPods to all these different nursing homes around the city. And no one really could have expected what happened next, but you can, you can actually watch the whole story on the documentary, Alive Inside. It's absolutely amazing. As he gave these iPods to these different nursing homes, and as those nursing homes created these personal playlists for their patients, patients who suffer from all different diseases, all different diagnoses, who were previously unresponsive, who were lifeless, who could barely put any words together As soon as those headphones go on and the music turns up, they become alive. Their eyes light up, their body starts moving, they start singing or humming or tapping to the beat, and you see the music is reaching a place that was previously unreachable. And neurologist and popular author Oliver Sacks, he describes what's happening. Here's what he says. I've worked with people with Alzheimer's, dementia, and all the various forms of it. Some of them are confused. Some of them are angry. Some are lethargic. Some of them have lost language altogether. But all of them, without exception, respond to music. And I hope you've gotten a taste of that this summer. As we went through these different psalms of praise and joy and thanksgiving, I hope it's helped your soul respond in some way. Where other things might be, not be able to reach you, the psalms of praise have an ability to go down into those places. This is why John Calvin called the psalms the anatomy of the soul, because they have this unique ability to speak to every part of our human life and existence. So as we come to the end of it, as we come to the end of this summer, summer sermon series, how do we continue in that? How do we continue in this life of praise that we've been learning together this summer? Psalm 150 is going to teach us. It's going to teach us three ways of how to continue to live a life of praise. Three things. The reality of praise. Second, the reason for praise. And third, the reward of praise. And I'll go through those one by one. First, Psalm 150 teaches us the reality of praise. Look back at verse 1. Psalm 150 opens with the call to praise the Lord and then ends in verse 6 with that exact same refrain, praise the Lord. And if you flip back in your Bible just a couple pages, that's not just Psalm 150, 
but the last five psalms of the Psalter. Psalm 146, 147, 148, 149, and yes, 150, all begin and end with the phrase, praise the Lord. And that's a word you're probably really familiar with. It's the strongest word for praise in the Hebrew language. It's the word hallelujah. Hallelujah meaning praise, and Yah obviously meaning Yahweh the Lord coming together for that strong word to wake us up from our slumber, praise the Lord. And with all that going on, it's not hard to interpret what the psalmist is trying to tell us. Some psalms can be more nuanced, they can be somewhat confusing, what's going on. Psalm 150 is pretty clear. 13 times in 13 lines, praise. And you notice in verse 1, he's not just saying praise the Lord, but he's asking you to join in with him. He's commanding us to participate in God's praises. Verse 1, after the initial call to praise, he says, Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. One of my seminary professors joked that Christians oftentimes hear praise the Lord, and what do we say? Praise the Lord. But he said, if I were to tell you, hey, go open that door, and you say, hey, go open that door, that would be extremely odd and not helpful in the least bit. You see, open that door is a command, and here we have praise being a command as well. Why is that? Why do the Psalms end with such a demand for our praises? You have to see, in in God demanding our praise, He's inviting us back to reality. Look back at verse 1, and notice particularly, where does the psalmist tell us to praise Yahweh? tells him to praise God in his sanctuary, and he tells us to praise him in his mighty heavens. That heavens is a reference back to Genesis 1, when God created the heavens and the earth. So in Psalm 150, when God tells us to praise him in his heavens and in his sanctuary, he's not saying praise him in two separate places. He's saying to praise him everywhere. Just like God created the heavens and the earth, he is to be praised in the heavens and the earth, which is represented here by the sanctuary. Or to put it better, in the words of Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner, he says, God's glory fills the universe, so his praise must do no less. God's presence is a reality everywhere, so our praise must be a reality everywhere. And hopefully that truth, that God's presence is a reality everywhere, so our praise must be a reality everywhere, hopefully that starts to make sense of that really difficult question that you probably had at some point in your life. That really difficult question of, why is God always asking us to praise Him? That was the question for C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, the popular Christian author, apologist, as he was drawing near to Christianity in his early 30s, he was learning more about it, and his friends were talking to him about it, and he was really intrigued, but there was this one great stumbling block he had. He was so confused while religious people kept telling him to praise God. And then he started reading the Psalms, especially Psalms like Psalm 150. And he found out the even worse truth that God himself was commanding him. God was telling C.S. Lewis to praise him. Why is this such a big issue? Because we hate that quality in other people. We hate when other people demand us to praise them. We hate when people are constantly needing our compliments. If after this service, I were to go out in the narthex with Mark and I was, I'd be there out there greeting you and you'd say, hey, Luke, have a great week. And I'd say, oh yeah, have a great week. Real quick while I got you. 
What about that sermon, though? What do you think about that sermon? Or, hey, well, I got you. I know Psalm 150 was really good for your soul, but what, what about what I said about it? Was that helpful to you, too? Did you like that, that point or that illustration? If I took it farther, hey, were you there on Tuesday fellowship nights? You see how fast I threw those water balloons? You see how accurate I hit those kids with those water balloons? <laughs> what do you think about that? You would think, I need a sabbatical. I need help. <laughs> when people demand their own praise, we call them prideful and arrogant and egotistical. When Lewis read the Psalms, he saw God as this vain person that needed our compliments to just feel good about himself. But that's not what's going on. What was Lewis missing and what might we be missing this morning? We're missing that when God demands his praise, he's not being vain. He's helping us live in reality. Lewis started noticing something about praise in the world, and here's what he wrote. He said, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their beloved, readers praising their favorite book, walkers praising their countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather and wine and movies and cars and horses and colleges, countries. He said, I never noticed the humblest praise most while the cranks praise least. To, be, to praise is to be awake, to have entered the real world. You see, praise is simply inner health made audible. You see, for me to ask you to constantly praise me would not be reality because I'm not constantly praiseworthy. I'm fallen, I'm finite. But when God asks us of our praise, he is asking us to step into reality because he is glorious in all his infinite attributes. His glorious presence fills the universe. So when we praise him, we step into the reality of that being true. This is why what we just confessed in our faith of Westminster Shorter Catechism 1 is so precious to us. Because it reminds us that the chief end of man, our chief purpose, what is really reality, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, in God commanding us to praise him, he's inviting us into the reality of enjoying him. In the same way that you love to praise whatever you enjoy. So if Lewis is right, that praise is just inner health made audible, the first question from Psalm 150 this morning is how is your praise life? How is your praise life coming to worship this morning? And that might be a really tough question for a whole list of various reasons. But the main one being, we live in a very cynical age where it's so much easier for us to critique something than to enjoy it, including our God. So we need help. We need help in learning how to praise, not be cynical. So what do we do? If praise isn't just an optional add-on for the Christian life, but it's essential to our reality, how do we learn to praise? That's point two. We've seen the reality of praise. Now let's look at the reason for praise. Look at verse two. The psalmist gives us two targets to aim our praise. Praise him for his mighty deeds and praise him according to his excellent greatness. How do we live a life of praise? We must be on the lookout for God's actions in our life and God's attributes in our life. We have to be on the lookout for what he has done, his mighty deeds, but also who he is, his excellent greatness. And you might notice that when you read those two targets, they're just a summation of the entire Psalms. 
after this summer, if you go back and read through some of the Psalms we covered, you'll see they constantly speak to those two areas, helping us to name them. They're constantly telling us what God has done in the overflow with the actions for God for his people. And they don't just stay down here on the ground, but they're constantly moving us back up into who God is, his character for us on our behalf. They give, they give us reason after reason after reason to praise. You see, Karl Marx was wrong. When Karl Marx said that Christianity and religion was just the opium of the masses, that was just an escape from reality. That was just a pie-in-the-sky attempt to find relief from the real problems of life. He was wrong. Because Psalm 150 doesn't just say escape reality, it tells us to enter reality. Psalm 150 doesn't just say praise Him, praise Him, praise Him. It gives us reasons to do so. Psalm 150 declares for us again and again that God has actually done something. So how do you learn how to praise? You're going to have to learn to name what he's done. And this is, I've learned this the most from a, from a guy named Eugene Peterson. He's one of my favorite authors. He was a Presbyterian pastor for many years and writes a lot on the life of the pastorate. But he grew up in the mountains of Montana on Flathead Lake, the beauty of the mountains and the beauty of creation out there. And he took a pastorate in the small town outside Baltimore, which for him was the other end of the earth. And as the years went by into the pastorate, his soul began to grow weary, not from sin, but from busyness. He found he had constantly had something to do, a church to run, people to see, sermons to preach. It was never enough, always one more thing. A lot of you probably feel like that right now. Always one more thing for me to do. So you know what he did? He took up bird watching. On his days off, him and his wife would take a drive. They'd go out into the country. They'd take their binoculars, and they'd hike around and look for birds. Why in the world would he do that? Listen to what he said in an interview right before he passed away. He said it was one of the most important practices of his life. He said, when I first started bird watching 40 years ago, all I knew were robins and crows. So everything was just noise. We didn't even see other things because we didn't have a vocabulary for them. And if you don't have a name for it, you probably will not notice it. This is why the Psalms are so essential. They give us a name of what God is doing in the world, and then they show us how to participate in that. Do you see what he's saying? Do you see how bird watching relates to the Psalms, as crazy as that sounds? At first, Eugene, when he went out, he just knew the name of a few birds. So when he walked through the woods, it all was just noise to him. But over time, he started to notice and be able to name not just robins and crows, but sparrows and blue jays, orioles and cardinals. And all of a sudden, his walks were not just noise anymore, they were music. The Psalms of praise do for us what birdwatching did for Eugene Peterson. They actually give us a name for who God is and what he might be up to in your life. And when we have a name for it, then we can start noticing it. Think about this summer in the Psalms, and I would encourage you this week, if you have a chance, to go back through some of them. Go back through Psalm 1 or Psalm 4 or Psalm 16, Psalm 30. But you'll notice really quickly that in those Psalms of praise, they give specific names for who God is and what he does. They tell us that God is full of mercy, steadfast in love, full of justice. They also give us language for what he's doing in your life. They tell us that he forgives and heals and redeems and crowns and satisfies. 
The Psalms give us a name for our God. And when you have a name, you start to notice it's not just noise. This is what praise is. It's naming and noticing who our God is and what he is doing right now. And this really came alive to me in new ways this past year. Like many of you all, I can find myself so busy. I can find myself distracted with so much noise. And this past spring especially was the highest point of my life for that. You all know, but I have three young kids. We're trying to get our house ready to sell. Winter is really hard with mercy. There's so many things going on in people's life, and people are struggling, and you want to help them. And you know what I did most of my spring? I spent my spring grumbling and complaining over and over again. And in God's providence, our house went up for sale when we went on spring break. And so we took spring break with our friends. It was four families, 11 kids, one house, complete disaster. Just kidding. It was great. It wasn't a disaster at all. And that Friday of spring break, if you remember, was Good Friday. And on Good Friday, we cooked this big meal to celebrate with our kids all that God is doing. And again, my heart is cold and complaining. And before we ate, you know what our kids wanted to do? They wanted to sing. And they wanted to sing, We Will Feast in the House of Zion. And I don't know if you know the lyrics, but here they are. They were singing, We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. And seeing my children sing that song, all my crankiness got pulled straight up into the praises of God. You see, I had forgotten the truth that the Psalms named for us again and again, that God has actually rescued me. And in his infinite kindness, in his great plan before the foundation of the world, in the spring of 2023, he would put the praises of his name in my children's lips so I would remember that. You see, Psalm 150 teaches us that reality is the praise of God, and then it gives us every reason that we should shout his praise. Now we just have to start developing the practice of doing it. Because again, if we can't name something, we won't ever notice it. And by the way, this is why we need each other too. You know the Psalms are not individualistic. The Psalms are meant to be prayed and sung together as one body together. Because some of you in here right now are in so much pain that you can't think of how in the world am I going to praise God. Some of you here right now are enduring so much suffering or enduring so much sin that you don't have any capacity to praise God. And that's why we need each other, because even when we can't praise God, other people can praise Him for us. That's why we come to church, so we can name the works of God on other people's behalf. We praise as one body together, so that even when you can't pray, you can show up this morning and someone can praise for you. Because that's what Jesus did, right? Let's end there with Him. We've seen the reality of praise, the reasons for praise. Now let's finish with the reward of praise. Look back at verse 3. And if you can, slow down your mind and listen to what happens in your heart as I read this. Verse 3. 
Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And I read pretty fast and I still can't keep up with it. You see what the the psalmist is doing there in the final psalm, this great hallelujah chorus. You can feel the crescendo happening in his heart. That's what the psalmist is doing, and he means when we read for us to be doing that too. He includes every type of instrument in there. The brass, the percussion, the winds, the strings. And this is not exactly a worship strategy for what we do up here, even though you can have applications for that. It's more of a worship strategy for what you're doing out there. His praise demands all of it, all the instruments, everything that you have. It's all-encompassing, intensifying and expanding, growing and growing and growing until all that's left is that final word, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And that's been the final word this whole time. As you might know, the Psalms are not just one book, but they're actually made up of five books. And you know each of those five books ends the exact same way. Psalm 41, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, Psalm 106, Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Which is why the ancient Hebrew title of the book of Psalms is the book of praises. But if you do actually go back and read through the Psalms, that might seem a little strange to you. As you read through the actual content of it, you might feel a little strange that this is entitled the book of Psalms. Because when you read through it, you actually find more psalms of lament than psalms of praise. And that's not just true of the psalms, but it's also true of our world, right? When you look at the world, isn't there more things to lament than to praise? When you look at your life sometimes and the struggles and the strife and the trials and the temptations you face, doesn't it feel like it's easier to lament than to praise? Doesn't it feel like we experience oftentimes more suffering than honest joy? So what gives? How can the Psalms declare they're a book of praises when there is so much lament? You see, the book of Psalms wasn't just casually arranged. It wasn't just thrown together last minute, put that Psalm there, put that Psalm over there, put it all together. No, when they put the Psalms together, they had a purpose in mind. The Israelites were coming out of exile. They had no land. They had no king. They had no prospects. They had no hope except the story that God had given them. And they organized the Psalms to fit that story. So if you read early on the Psalms, you'll find so much lament. But as you get closer and closer, nearer and nearer to the end, the laments get lighter and the praise gets louder. Those laments turn more and more into praise because that's the Christian story. The Christian story is suffering to glory. Lament to praise. Because that's not just the story of the Psalms, that's the story of our Savior. If you remember, Jesus went to the Psalms for everything. They're all over his life, constantly on his lips. When he's feeling betrayed, he goes to a Psalm. When he's being questioned, he goes to a Psalm. When he's speaking of something in the past, he goes to a Psalm. When he's speaking of the future, he returns again to the Psalms. For Jesus, everything went back to this altar. And so it's no surprise that when he faced his biggest trial, the sufferings of the cross for the sins of his people, what did he do? He turned to a psalm. Psalm 22, it was not a psalm of praise. It was a terrible cry of lament. And on the cross, Jesus went to the psalms 
And he cried out, Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But remember, the Psalms don't end with lament. And neither does Jesus. In one of the most spectacular verses in the New Testament, in Hebrews 2, 12, Jesus comes back to Psalm 22. And he quotes from Psalm 22 again in Hebrews 2, but he's no longer suffering for our sin. He's conquering over it. If you've never seen this, it is unbelievable. Jesus says in Hebrews 2.12, quoting Psalm 22.22, and listen to this. This is Jesus speaking. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus is no longer crying out in lament. He is singing praise. And he's not singing by himself. He's singing in the midst of a congregation. Why? Because he does not sing for himself. He sings for you. On the cross, Jesus cried out with lament for you. So this morning, you might be able to sing praises to him. Praise, do you not see, is the final word of the Christian life. Therefore, it's the definitive word of the Christian life. Because one day it will be our only word. And this is exactly why music is helping Alzheimer's patients. You see, with Alzheimer's patients, those words of praise are tapping into something that the words of this world just can't get to. They are the final word. They are the reward of the Christian life. And these words of praise don't just give us hope for tomorrow. They really can heal you today. In her article, Music, Memory, and Alzheimer's, the author, Bertie Bowler, tells her family story of struggling through her dad's diagnosis with dementia. And as many of y'all know who have loved ones that struggle with Alzheimer's or dementia or similar disease, it is so gut-wrenching because you're watching a loved one lose more and more of themselves as the days go on. Her dad was diagnosed five years ago, and obviously it was slow at first and increased more and more with time. And this past November, his diagnosis started to decline severely. And the family worried that in early November, he might not be around for Christmas. So they decided to celebrate Christmas early. They decorated the house. They put up the tree. They brought all the old family ornaments and memories. And she said it was really sad because he didn't really seem to notice any of it. He didn't seem to notice anything until they put on an old record of his favorite Christmas hymns. And here's what she writes about his response when he heard those hymns. Although Dad was unable to articulate any of his thoughts anymore, his eyes lit up as the carols played. His feet began to tap, and until several weeks before he died, he would sing along, or some days just whistle. In his final weeks, Dad often looked up and away with glowing eyes, seemingly already in another world visible only to him. On several occasions, he said, be quiet. They're getting ready to sing for us now. She said, clearly God was close by, and he was singing him home. Do you see what happened to him? The final word broke in. The final word of praise broke in. And that's not just true for dementia patients. That's true for you as well this morning. Jesus is our great song of praise. He is our hallelujah chorus. And he can go places this world cannot go. He really can heal things this world cannot heal for you. The darkest of sin, the deepest of suffering. Christian, the final word is praise. And I'm promising you, it will break through. So I hope no matter what you're going through this week, I pray you can look up 
and let your Savior sing you home. Let's pray. Father, we need your praises. We are not strong enough. We so struggle with our own weaknesses and sin and suffering, and we need your songs of praise to carry us, Lord. As we learn to sing your song of praise, help us sing it together as one church and one body unite together over you. Lord, now we pray as one voice as you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.